Van Halen's sound, if there is any design to it at all, the sound of Van Halen is meant to spill over all over your turntable and ruin the rest of your records. Same thing. You love them, you hate them, you want to kill them. But if somebody else comes involved, you'll kill them. The two of them will turn on you. That's, it. That's the only difficult thing I'm always joking. I said, these guys never agree unless someone else comes in with a new thing. Then boom, they're together, man. Bang, you're, you're like bumping heads at the two of them. Right now, on the Well of Sound, Van Halen. got butterflies a little bit it's like i'm talking about a high school girlfriend (laughs) because i mean here's the sad news of this episode van halen was my high school girlfriend (laughs) 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 um van halen was my first tape among my first cds you know that i bought with my own money and so i just took it on as my you know the flag that i carried apropos of Nothing. Really? Just, I, I chose them. For me, it was everything. Um, uh, my father was a big uh, MTV person in the early days, and my, my older brother was too. And you, there was a period there in the middle of the 80s where you couldn't turn it on without seeing either Jump or David Lee Roth doing some you know, just crazy promo. And he was, he was a cartoon version of himself, which is a cartoon already. So it's, and also he was like a mouthpiece for, for, I mean, he wasn't a VJ, but he was a mouthpiece for MTV. I mean, they would throw to him as, I mean, he, he's essentially one of the first reality stars. You know, if we, if we call MTV as, as sort of a, a, a fledgling reality network, David Lee Roth is, He's one of, their, he's one he's of, the, one of the, the, the stars. The progenitors yeah, exactly. of reality TV. Wake up, America! We're proposing a toast! It's the David Lee Ralph weekend! Right here on MTV! <laughs> I did not know much about Van Halen before we got into this. I, I'd sort of had the first album, and I knew some of the hits, and... Um, you know, I, I knew right now, and I knew sure. some of those songs, but I didn't have a deep appreciation. So it's been a steep learning curve for me, right? But a very worthwhile one. Let's let's start with a tale of two Dutch boys. I, I mean, it is it is two Dutch Indo Dutch boys. Indo Dutch boys, yeah. Their dad is a is a a, a big band. What's a clarinet? clarinet. A I, clarinetist. Know, a horn man. Horn, <laughs> a horn man who went around the world and met his wife in Indonesia and then came back to Holland and I guess it, it was insufferable there that she, she was treated like a second class citizen and they had to leave because she, of racism yes struggled with the, she was a total outsider right in, in, in Holland what, in like 1950s Holland right and so they uh, Jan Van Halen Van get, Halen Van Halen uh, uh, gets a gig on a boat and plays his way across the Atlantic, right? And then they, they, you know, and then they make their way across the States and, and land in Pasadena. I knew a couple of words. My mom bought the records and, and yeah. the pictures and stuff, and I didn't get past page two. And 
first one was motorcycle accident. Yes, no, you know. That's about as far as I got. When did, it, when did it become apparent that you and Alex were pretty talented kids? I mean, was it obviously you were musical at a certain like point. We began playing uh, piano when we lived in Holland. And Eddie tells stories of like learning. They're they're both sort of classically trained, and he was, but he never learned how to read music. He was watching and imitating the piano teachers. Uh, uh, their keyboard moves basically the whole right. time. He, his brain just works. You realize very early on in this story that Eddie has a brain that works uh, in a very singular way, mm. and that he had a, he understood music on a preternatural, elemental level. Um, but landed in the right family because it, it was clearly everywhere. He talks about he and Alex walking around the kitchen table, just smacking pa- pots and pans, and and creating music constantly that that was their pastime together what sounded like the only light part of an otherwise like dark period for the family neither one of us knew the language so we ended up being really close friends aside from the fact that we had a mutual interest which was uh, beating the out of each other i mean they they were under duress and then even when they got to pasadena the father is working as a janitor mm-hmm. The mother's working as a maid. They're walking to work. They know no one. And the dad is trying to find gigs on the weekends uh, as a musician um, to bring in a little extra money and then recruits his sons, who clearly have a talent, um, to be in in the band. And, and they kind of have a family band thing going on. There's a place on Cahuenga Boulevard called Continental Club. Still I think there. it's still there. Yeah. And it used to be a, a jazz club. And my dad had a band called the Rhythm Airs. The Rhythm Airs. Yeah. And, and uh, every now and then the drummer couldn't make it. Now would sit in for the guy. How old were you? Uh, 14 years old? My first paying gig was I was 13. Yeah, 13? Wow. And uh, it, was, it was a great it was, way. It was hilarious. But he played great. It was, it was totally happening. So meanwhile, yeah. across Pasadena, um, uh, the Roth family, Dr. Roth. Dr. Roth has a son that can barely be contained. <laughs> Just, I mean, imagine this is probably a pre-ADHD yeah. scenario. Yeah. Ritalin is not on the counter. Nope. And uh, you've got David Lee Roth growing up in your house. I mean, what, on, what they probably put up with. I guess what it is is like I had a short childhood. I knew what I was going to do when I was seven years old. I started imitating all the, you know, the commercials on TV and ticky-tacking on the table and sing, you know, all the songs. And everybody said, well, don't pay any attention to Dave. He's just doing monkey hour like that. <laughs> and then I really put everybody to consternation because I started preparing for the career. You know, I started <laughs> studying and learning the comic books and that kind of thing. And everybody said, oh, no, he's serious. The definition of too much. It's just, does this ever, does this ever go off? Does it ever stop? And, uh, but a fascinating person. His uncle, um, was owned a club in New York, an influential club, was Richard Pryor's first manager. David Lee Roth was exposed to that, and I think just instantly saw what stardom could be mm. um, and saw the sort of uh, diverse and wild and crazy aspects of show business um, from the inside and instantly said, that's, that's, that's who I will be. I'm going to do this I'm uh, gonna do times that. 10. Times a hundred. He sure does. But I, th- I think it's so. Doesn't it? Isn't it that Eddie starts on the drums? Yeah. Alex starts on the guitar. Like you know, most of the musicians we've talked about, the Beatles come along and it changes everything. Eddie also talks about um, 
the Dave Clark Five uh, being a in, big influence in uh, Glad All Over, mm-hmm. that song, uh, which starts with a sort of a, a strong drum presence. Great song. Eddie wants to do that, so he, he buys himself, he, he gets a paper route, saves up for a drum kit, gets the drum kit, but then still has the paper route. So while he's out, I'll play the drums and he get better than me. Does that make you mad? <laughs> Another thing here, though, which I feel like is really important um, and will will find its way through all of this, is the brotherly dynamic. Mm-hmm. It seems like Alex is clearly a great musician, but Eddie's a genius. And big brother Alex protects his little brother sort of at all costs. Yeah. Um, especially in a, uh, as we've already described, a difficult family situation. Um, his dad definitely is an alcoholic. I mean, a f- full-blown. And that, that really explains a lot, especially in the later chapters of the Van Halen story. Mm-hmm. Um, they loved their father, but it sounds like his way of bonding with his kids is when they were you know, 10 and 11 to, to drink with them. Right. Right. I mean, some sort of slightly unheard yeah, of... Yeah, they're smoking and drinking at, at, at that age. Yeah, I think Alex Van Halen said that he lost his virginity when he was nine years old. Alex is the craziest person I've ever met in this business, and I'm not, I'm not burning on him, and I'm not trying to make him you know, out something he isn't. True life, the man is mad. He is nuts. What you have to understand mostly about Alex or any other drummer is that... Drummers are people who make their livings hitting things with sticks. But uh, Alex has got to be the main spirit of Van Halen. Really? Yes, that's why we we named the band after him, not Edward. Chuck Klosterman, whose um, uh, article about Van Halen we will will be referencing because he ranked every single Van Halen song and gives this very colorful commentary, very much like he did with Kiss. Um, he calls them classically trained virtuosos who make music for getting hammered in parking lots. So they, they start playing in bands, though. Yeah. And that's where they meet uh, Michael Anthony Sobolewski at Pasadena High School, right? Yeah. He's lead singer in his own band, The Snakes. He's got some range. He does. And that's a defining sound of future Van Halen at this point. Yeah, and I had no idea. Michael Anthony um, is really... Uh, the good guy who gets a lot of grief. Uh, Man, does he. I would call it a thankless uh, position as bassist and backup vocalist for Van Halen. And he's very recognizable. You know, he, totally. uh, he's, he's very prominent in all the videos. Van His Halen. look has not changed since 19-whatever, 76. Yeah, when he exactly. first photos are, are, are out there. A few him. less jumpsuits, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. He definitely rocked the jumpsuit. You always felt the sense he looked, he looked like he was like 50 even when he was 25. <laughs> But he was having a lot of fun, like yeah. they all were. They were having a lot of fun. Yeah. Sitting with me directly on my right is the lover boy of the 21st century, a man some people say is Mr. Malibu himself, an unstoppable party machine, Michael Anthony, bass player for Van Halen. Once they bring in Michael Anthony, they're renting PA equipment from David Lee Roth, who has his own band. Um, and eventually they just say, we don't want to keep paying you. Why don't you be in our band and then we'll have the equipment. After, don't they sort of turn him down a few times uh, from audition? <laughs> I would think that that is probably the case always with David Lee Roth. You got to turn him down a few times, but he'll keep on coming at What's you. What's the word? Uh, irrepressible? When I was younger, I was an honor student, you know. Uh, 
I remember very vividly many, many times saying, yes, Your Honor, no, Your Honor. Uh, yes, I was here last week, Your Honor. So they, they start gigging, and one of the things when they talk about the origins of Van Halen, they kept talking about them as playing a lot of backyard parties. Yeah. Now, maybe this is, must be a Southern California thing, because I don't hear about this in any other rock and roll context of there being an actual circuit of backyard parties where they'd pull up and play on trucks' beds and things like that. Well, I was thinking about this. Uh, once Ben Halen, uh, you know, is gigantic in the 80s, marketing for kids changes, and there's video games, and there's uh, toys and action figures and cartoons and all this stuff, mm-hmm. like, on, on a next level, uh, like there wasn't before. I feel like in the 70s, there's, there's this sort of dead zone for anybody under 18. Um, and you see it in the movies at the time, Over the Edge, Bad News Bears, and, and you know, it's sort of a, like a vagabond life being a, uh, a, kid. a kid. Latchkey kid almost. Yeah, basically. That's the sound of Van Halen, especially in Southern California. Skateboarding's on the rise. Like These are kids that find things to do outside of adult purview. And um, it's 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 a punk attitude, but it's still like a rock spirit. They're constantly called a party band uh, yeah. because most of their songs are about having fun. Except for they're they're not. There are the songs that are about fun, and then there's the songs that are like dark and dirty. Yeah, I guess there's there's it's a it's a digging into Van Halen. I I, I think I told you this, but I was surprised to find so little heart. And by that, I don't mean that there's not a lot of passion and emotion in the songs, but there's so little true vulnerability. There's so much, uh, you know, machismo and, uh, you know, a swagger, Mm -hmm. but you do not have um, vulnerability in the way that the soft rock sort of scene would have been out there. Right. You have much more of a, I don't know slightly dazed and confused uh but kids that are tough kids yeah 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 who, who sort of lived on their own and they are definitely not gonna sing james taylor to you no they want to they're they're into i think eddie talks about eric clapton being his great influence right uh, cream but, days only he says <laughs> cream days only yeah yeah i didn't know that yeah. i know that they loved the first montrose record yeah this is a, one of these That's wild things. That's going to circle back in a way. 1973, uh, Montrose, Ronnie Montrose, with, he has a singer named Sam Hagar. Yeah. And they released this kind of boogie rock record, which is really great. It, it, it was a slow burn for me. I did not sort of recognize the, the, the hookiness and the power of it until I had to because of this had to listen to it multiple times and honestly I'd say it was like we've been talking about this for a while but it was only in like the last two days that it kind of clicked with me and I'm like damn it's a good record it's a good record Montrose, that's in the background. Uh, is Mon- Ronnie and Montrose you can hear from Canada, things. maybe? Uh, Ronnie Montrose. Uh, no, he's, he's from he's from California. He's yeah. from California. He's a Bay Area guy. Yeah. Um, 
and was already working with he was in the Edgar Winter group and I guess did stuff with uh, Van Morrison um, yes he plays guitar on Tupelo Honey yeah and uh, because another major figure in this is Ted Templeman now yeah. we've talked he's a producer he's sort of an elite producer he he produced uh, a bunch of the, the, the basically the second Little Feet record and he's mainly produced a ton of uh, uh, Doobie Brothers yep maybe it was Templeman talking about the the part of Eddie's head that can uh, understand any instrument almost instantaneously really and but not only that can understand the electronics behind the sound and you know Eddie talks about not not having any sort of guitar lessons in any way and as a result searching out a sound that he could sort of only hear in his head that didn't exist and the way he did that is by making instruments that didn't exist and amplifiers that did not exist and pedals that didn't exist. He actually makes these things. Yeah. He creates the... When does he create the Frankenstrat? Um, you know... How early is that? Uh, it's... I'm I'm totally guessing here, but I'm guessing it's it's around seventy-five. It's before they get um, recognized. Yeah. Like he's basically uh, uh, made fun of for his Frankenstein-looking guitar, which is uh, uh, this is just the definition I pulled from Wikipedia. The Frankenstrat was Van Halen's attempt to combine the sound of a classic Gibson guitar with the physical attributes and tremolo bar functionality of a Fender Stratocaster. For him, clearly, neither were good enough for what he wanted to do. It was made from a Northern Ash Stratocaster body with pickup routing, which he modified to fit a Gibson PAF humbucking bridge pickup. And that's that's the, the, the guitar that was famous as of 78 when the first album comes out. But even before that, he's cobbling together different versions of all, of all these things. It's so get, cool to, yeah. to read about. I will it's say... It's in the Smithsonian. I thought to myself, you know, it'd be fun to be playing some of the stuff that they were doing in the early 70s because they, they didn't record many demos, but they did do a lot of live shows. But uh, it's a measure of how... <laughs> dysfunctional this whole situation has become in that uh, the reissues of Van Halen records are sparse there's been no deluxe treatment no box set there's a few greatest hits records with some extra tracks on them but the rarities um, they're hard to come by YouTube's a good source somebody dropped all the demos from the early days up to this the, the, the first big moment in the in the Van Halen story which is um, they're playing, uh, I think, at the Whiskey. They're first recognized by Rodney Bingenheimer, who then tells who? Gene Simmons. Beba! <laughs> Actually, what I am is evil incarnate. We're back to kiss. You uh, couldn't be gone long. We couldn't have been gone long. Gene Simmons, uh, under the advisement of Bingenheimer, who's the, 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 the famous DJ. DJ of the Sunset Strip, teams up with Kim Fowley, who we've talked about before, because of Fanny, but also Kim Fowley's responsible for the Runaways or takes credit for the Runaways. Yeah, he's a um, world-class weirdo. Yeah, uh, to get them to a sort of a higher level. But anyway, we get to Gene Simmons uh, deciding these are the guys he's going to back, and he pays for them to do a, a, a professional-level demo. Mm. He's got like 10 songs on it. It's great. They call it Van Halen Zero. It'd be great if this was officially released. Um, it's, it's honestly, it's it's a great listen. I mean, uh, I think Gene, in 
pure Gene Simmons fashion that, that likes to cr- take credit for discovering Van Halen. And you know, I'm, I'm, let, I'm happy to let him do that. And they 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 do give him some credit. Um, so they record these demos with yeah. Gene, mm-hmm. but they still don't go anywhere with it. I mean, this is like 1975, I think. Right? Well, Gene takes them to Casablanca. And honestly, they dodged a bullet. They've got problems of their own over there. Casablanca <laughs> Neil said... Neil Bogart. ...said, uh, these guys are going nowhere. And uh, crestfallen, they go back to business as usual. But uh, I just wanted to point out that on Van Halen Zero, uh, those demos, the songs that are on that not only make up the first and second album... A few of them get recorded for the reunion record in 2012, right? Yeah, and also show up on 1984 even. House of Pain, um, which is on 1984, is, is even in the demos. But what I was going to say is Dave puts on a Gene voice, and clearly Gene told him to do it. Well, you know, thank, thank you, Gene, for whatever role you played, because you've, you've yet again touched our hearts with your strange black magic. Oh, well, oh I, you know what I was going to mention is that uh, round about that time, Kiss is doing, putting together Love Gun, and Gene is going to present three songs. He had to put together demos for Paul and Ace and, and Peter Chris to, to basically get behind. And he recruited Eddie and Alex... To play on them? To play on the demos to propose to the rest of the band. Do you know what those three are? Well, it's been for Love Gun, so was it uh, Christine 16? It was. Really? A song I loathe. <laughs> you loathe? Um, uh, got Love for Sale. That's a pretty good song. It's a pretty good song. <laughs> and, what else? and then Tunnel of Love, which actually made it onto the Gene Simmons solo album. Mercifully. So they're dejected, though. They end up, um, and they're, but now they're starting stopping. They're still playing parties, backyard parties. Yeah. But then they, they start playing clubs, too. We were all going to different schools and uh, living in a generally the same area of California. None of us are from California. That's a come we don't sound like the Eagles. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, we just wanted to get discovered, and L.A. is a good place to do it. You know, there's a lot of music, a lot of rock bands, a lot of everything going on in Los Angeles. And they're, I think, on Sunset Strip somewhere. Maybe Grisettas, mm-hmm. Grisettis, mm-hmm. Um, that famous club, and that... Uh, Gazaris. Gazaris, excuse me. When one night, uh, Ted Templeman and Mo Austin, mm-hmm. you know, from Warner Brothers, like the, head, the great Mo Austin who's discovered so many people, they see them, they discover them, they immediately sign them. And this is yeah. 1976, I believe. Yeah. Um, and they put the, get them in the studio for Van Halen 1. Oh, wait. I, gotta, I just got to add a couple other things. Okay. Hit Here me. we go. We're going to play some music, but... Here is what, uh, so Van Halen was initially called Mammoth, right? Before Mammoth, they were called Genesis, and then oh, they yeah. discovered yes. that there already a Genesis already existed. They changed their name to Mammoth. Dave takes credit for the Van Halen name. He thought it had longevity. And he's right. Some, something like Santana, right? That's what he, he's compared it to. But Gene Simmons thought that they should change their name once again to Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> really? Yeah. What do you think about playing You Really Got Me? Yeah. I mean, that's that gives a sense of their their days before then, because this is a, a cover of You Really Got Me by the Kinks that um, 
for which they were very well known. You know, Mott the Hoople had a great You Really Got Me cover. I mean, lots of people have had a You Really Got Me cover. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think any... But this was, a, this was a bona fide hit. Smash, yeah. A smash that launched the band. And you really get a sense of what the engine was behind all of this. Yeah. If it's just Alex and Eddie wanting to play music... You hear it in this cover. You hear, like, just drums and guitar. You hear a band taking shape and being totally unique. That's Van Halen in a nutshell, right there. I mean, uh, all that Eddie is, those uh, Alex's drums, and then, as you already mentioned, the Michael Anthony harmonies with Eddie. That's an accomplished cover, and you, you hear none of the sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, ricketiness of the original song, um, right. where Dave Davies, you feel like he's falling off a stool while he's playing his solo. And, and Eddie here, it's like he's in so complete control of his instrument. Um, you know, going in again, I did not realize how much of a of a of a role that Michael Anthony backup the, the, his backup vocals. I know he's harmonizing with Ed some, but it's really right. him that he provides a lot of them melodic um, oomph. But before we go any further, talk to me about David Lee Roth's vocals. What? Where are you with those? Part of this process of going back into Van Halen was tough for me because I. I so associate it with my own youth Mm -hmm. and sort of basically being something that I don't care to revisit. You know, I've sort of maxed out my time with Van Halen. I'm done. I I close the door on it and move on, right? Mm -hmm. And going back... has actually been like illuminating. Um, I'm, I'm reconsidering the band in, in a different way, and especially Roth, whose lyrics I think are pretty awesome. His, his biggest asset as, as a lyricist is the cinematic nature of, of his lyrics. As always, I mean, we'll get into the, the you know, the scootily op and bop and, and all the, the <laughs> zippity boop bop, all that stuff that comes from old Hollywood that he loves so much. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's rare. You know, I, I'd once heard that he's, he's not a singer. He's much like a personality, yeah. uh, with a voice. Yep. And, um, that, that characterization I think is, does explain a lot of Roth because there is so much personality, so much acting, there's so much verve. Right. And um, he can go from, you know, smirking to menacing to seductive. And yet he, he does a lot of these like hyper um, horn dog kind of uh, things that somehow don't come off as um, leering or something. I, I mean, or. They, yeah, they, they definitely keep for the first three albums. Women like these things rather than right. uh, rather than feel like grossed out by him. So there's a there's a uh, 
There's a good gigolo is, is kind of how he sees himself. Listen how I talk. Where do you think I learned <laughs> this kind of rhythm? I have a surgically implanted disco beat, man. <laughs> like I got it from radio. My whole life is on 78 RPM. We cannot talk about David Lee Roth without talking about his stage presence and his costumes. I mean, he dresses, let's face it, like a Chippendales dancer. He dresses in like a, it's like exactly like it, a male stripper. He pioneers the assless chaps from what I can tell. Basically. I was watching a live. And, but that has, I mean, to basically opt to make himself super sexy for the ladies, quote unquote, is a pretty great thing right i mean that that that's what we haven't hit on it yet but that's what van halen does at the time that hard rock is not doing right it's it's uber masculine and um it's getting darker and darker or it's becoming blander and blander yeah and it's not inclusive in any way and the reason why it's party rock why the term is is thrown at van halen is because look van halen works for everybody if they've had a couple drinks. Yeah. I, I agree. It's fun. I agree. I think that's a fair characterization. I, I would also just say I think his voice is better than... Uh, the stuff he's doing with it is... It, Basic. Some of it is impossible to learn. You are, it's kind of the stuff you either have or you don't. Yeah. My idols were never music. I have no musical influences, so to speak. My idols were always people like uh, Genghis Khan or Muhammad Ali or Alexander the Great or the guy who invented McDonald's hamburgers. You know, it was always somebody else far removed from music, and uh, that's why a lot of times you listen to Van Halen records. There's a lot of things that just seem not to have anything to do with rock and roll that's because i've never written down any lyrics a lot most of them are made up in the studio is that that well yeah the thing about the line going up the back of the stockings you know and that's what you just make it up you talk i want to hear jamie's crying i love that song It works. I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, the first. Let's let's just. There's so much going on in the first album. I mean, it starts with that car horn sort of blast across. Um, that's in the demos, but Templeman sort of takes it up a notch. Um, you've got eruption. You, you listen to it. The people that listen to it listen to it, and it's like, how did he do that? Right. How did he make those sounds? And then they spent the next. Everyone on YouTube today can do it, but it's uh, at that time, it was a mystery. He says, you know, he he saw Jimmy Page at the forum. He saw Zeppelin, and Page is like holding a fret in one hand, and then his arm is out extended, sort of epically, and he's like, 
what's that guy doing with his other hand? Like he could just put it on the fretboard and like, and that's go nuts and go nuts. And that's what Eddie does. He's using two hands there rather than one. Do you want, do we need to talk about some of his techniques? Because I'm not much, I, I'm not a equipped. guitarist. Yeah, I'm, I mean, they dive bombing with the whammy bars and finger tapping is the great skill that he pioneers, which yeah. there are people who'd done it sort of before, but not anywhere near his level of proficiency and where he's, he's tapping with both, both hands, the fretboard, not not using a pick, not strumming it. He's holding the guitar with both hands, and somehow is able to do this um, uh, unbelievably quickly, pumping out notes. Yeah. And um, it 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 spawns, as you say, imitators uh, for to Kingdom Come. Yeah. To the extent that I think it's hard, uh, you know, Van Halen has not experienced a rena- renaissance in the way that a lot of bands have no. from that era. Um, you know, there haven't been, uh, there's been a reappreciated. There was a great story last year where Billie Eilish, you know, the great, a uh, huge phenom right now, young singer on Jimmy Kimmel, um, she didn't, uh, she, it came out that she didn't know who Van Halen were. It, and for this band that was that enormous Gigantic. to have been almost not forgotten, but they've, they've really, uh, it's partly because his sound became so tied to that era and its imitators rather than Eddie himself. Yeah. Also, it has a little bit to do with, I think, Eddie being personally a bit of a train wreck Yeah. and not being out there in the way that he might have been. Sure, sure. But I found that to be very interesting that, uh, you know, you don't... They, they, the, the cyclical nature, as as Klosterman says, of, uh, of, of cultural significance has not really worked in their favor. Um, well, just to, to run a recap on, on the first album, which... I mean, I, I think it's, it's pretty flawless. Feel Your Love is like sort of the, the only standard fare on, on the album. Other than that, every song does something distinct and powerful. Um, like we said, Eruption, Ain't Talking About Love has the sort of the punk chants. But there's a lot of chanting, but the, that's also kind of a mission statement. He's not talking about, he really, these aren't love songs Dave no. is writing. Yeah. They're party songs, they're sex songs, right. stripper songs. Right. Uh, but also, <laughs> they are stripper songs. apparently Eddie doesn't even know the words to most Van Halen songs. He, that's how focused he is on the music. Oh, that's how drunk he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Van Halen 2, like, like we said, um, draws from those demos. Um, but for the first time, we really get a feel for the the lighter, like, party side of Van Halen. I would say that first record is pretty damn dark. And the second record, with Dance the Night Away, is like this sort of uplifting... I love Dance the Night Away. Have you seen a Until this point, you're you're associating with that level of distortion with 
pure aggro yeah. kind of um, get away from me sort of music, which you know I like. I really I like enjoy that. Black Sabbath and and especially Zeppelin, but um, his guitar uh, the tone on the first record, especially, is called the Brown Sound, and it really hadn't existed in the same way, and it would define the '80s. But it uh, it really he was there doing it in 1976 or whatever, and if someone calls the holy grail of guitar tones, it's the Brown Sound. Yeah, it's very musical. Um, it's it's not too harsh, but it's heavy. I mean, it's it's, it's sort heavy. of this perfect balance, and and it allows for them to go between things like atomic punk mm-hmm. on the first record, and then uh, uh, dance the night away on the second record, and then there's of course there's heavier stuff on on the second record. So it opens with a it opens with a cover of a Linda Ronstadt song. You're no good. I love that. Isn't cover. that wild? And and it's and and uh, they thought it was going to be a throwaway cover until they realized it sounds exactly like a Van Halen song. But my my favorite song on the second record, yeah, is somebody get me a doctor. I think this riff is. I think it's, is is as good a riff. When we talk about riffs, this could be in you know the Smithsonian itself as yeah. a riff. it man it's undeniable it's it is undeniable demand your attention the uh i thought it was interesting that um there's a you know the 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 black and yellow guitar that's on the back of van halen too because yeah. van halen too the cover is really the, the great van halen logo which as we found out you know is is kind of a knockoff of a thin lizzie logo right um that's the only link i could find a thin lizzie <laughs> uh, but um it's it, that guitar is the bumblebee and it was buried with the Pantera guitarist Dimebag Daryl, yep. who's a bit of a hero. And of course, uh, what kind of casket was Dimebag Daryl buried in? Kiss casket. A Donated, kiss- of course. They did not have to buy it. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, I mean, who knows? Kiss the guys. band do make, have their own brand of caskets. And uh, Eddie himself put in the Bumblebee. Yeah. Uh, so Because um, Dimebag and his brother, before every show, would play Eruption to get pumped for the show. They'd actually just listen to it. They wouldn't actually play it on themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wow. would listen to it. Sorry. Wow. They do. Have, there's a lot of stories about their tours because they go on after the first album. They go on. They go on tour first in in America, I believe. They tour with Montrose, though Hagar's no longer a part of it. They they support Journey, which right. is at the height of really it's Steve. And a, there's all these stories of them making Steve Barry cry. And <laughs> what? I mean, Steve Barry's. Whole vibe is, uh, which I happen to also adore, but is so the different from David Lee Roth. It just could not be believed. And uh, and then they, but then they go to England and they support Black Sabbath. So you see within that that they contain a, a, that's quite a spectrum actually. Yeah. Because the people that are going to see Journey, which has you know lots of power ballads, sort of the definitive pro, pro, the archetypal power ballads. Yeah. And then those who are following Black Sabbath around in 1977 or whatever. 
it's just a different crowd. Yeah. And yet, I pity both of those bands having to go on after Eddie Van Halen during that stage where no one had ever heard the sort of stuff he was doing. Right. And it still sounds fresh and energized and innovative. Um, and to just and and you watch, you know, I've, I've said there's an amazing video of a 1978 performance of theirs that's been sort of remastered on YouTube. And I mean, the energy of these guys when you say they're filling up every sound. I mean, the whole idea sounds you know and if the music goes boom then i can do the same thing i can make myself do the same thing and i don't choreograph what i'm going to do at a given time you know when the music's playing it's like you just fill up your hat with stuff and then get seized by the moment you still do the splits i can still do the splits roth is is jumping and doing acrobatics which he was training sort of as like a trapeze artist I mean, yeah. he, 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 he predates Let's... all of these guys <laughs> today who have physical tra- you know physical trainers Roth is like doing legit karate moves <laughs> and not in an Elvis way but in a real yeah, like right. you can actually pull it off <laughs> although and, there's some Vegas in, in Roth that's oh for sure. 100% but then Eddie is jumping and, and moving and totally up on it and Alex is a maniac and, and then Michael Anthony is holding it down no but he's he's jumping around too totally I don't think his bass playing gets enough uh, skill they always say he's a competent bassist I mean he's playing these hyperactive lines no, he's great he's not Entwistle perhaps but he's 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 no slouch you're either born a bass player or you're a failed guitarist trying to play guitar on a bass I don't know <laughs> you know I like being part of that the foundation that's just like just as important just to have the groove being locked in there you know and i and when i get up there on stage and i got all this stuff blowing behind me and i'm sitting there right on that one note and everything's shaking and my fillings are getting ready to fall out i'm going yeah i like this i like playing this instrument after van halen 2 comes women and children first which continues the formula yeah, yeah. I, I feel like it is it is an accomplished third record it gives you everything that you want if you've been listening to van halen one and van halen two there's some new material on there for the first time again like one and two these are 30 minute records you know like they get in and they get out i mean to templeman's credit templeman does a lot right and is it is basically at this point an integral part of the band and the sound uh if he does anything right it's that he captures the the live sound of this band what you hear on those tracks is is as live as it gets in the in the studio i mean we got the first song on there do it and the cradle will rock it's just pure attitude
great song. It reminds me in, in a great way of Surrender, right? Of mm-hmm. just capturing the teen. I mean, this is music for teenagers. Yeah. You know, it just. It, Have you seen Junior's Grades? <laughs> it's it's rebellion, you know, packed into. You know, but then you have a song tracks. like towards the end. I think uh, in a simple rhyme is like was it was a song I'd never heard before, yep. and I thought it was really that actually is the, is the first time that you can see Van Halen with David uh, in a context that isn't about you know babes and and beer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's if Roth has ever like bared his soul in a song that's as close as the that's heart. as close to it, to it as we get yeah well back in the past when I was treated so coldly my love life was a time disgrace needed someone to love and hold me that's one of the reasons that I was out of place so this love well she finally kissed me had me all worked up inside I was in love but Cupid missed me she up to left and I almost died but I was young and I was far from lonely I've been that way for a long long year needed a girl to call my one and only is that you you think you got the so um and the Cradle of Rock sort of continues their streak of their sort of winning streak but uh, I, I remember reading that Eddie felt like that they were uh, forced to record it too quickly and too, too, too uh, it was not quite to his standards he was ready for something more intricate and, and the band were starting to get typecast I guess even though okay. there's some more stuff on there and so he decides to buckle down and really create his album in which David and you know the rest of the band and the Templeman kind of acquiesce to Eddie, mm-hmm. and he comes up with fair warning. So I'll just say this, which is that when I closed the door on Van Halen, yeah, the only takeaway that I took with me was that fair warning is a desert island disc and belongs among the great albums of all really? time. Really? Yeah. Tell me more about that because I, I I I like it, but I'm also I, it, it 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 is a bit of an outlier. Although people, the critics love it's it. It's nothing most. like the the other records, mainly because of the darkness and the full Eddie control. You hear more experiment experimentation than you've ever heard from from Ed. And um, I would say, you know, if if there's anything that that could have made Van Halen really interesting for the history books, it would be if Eddie had gone off in in that trajectory even even more. Um, it's it's a dark record and Roth kind of goes there mm-hmm. and actually what happens is that you because there's no upbeat sheen it's it's not quote-unquote you know as far as Roth would say you know for the ladies um, it strips Roth's stylings down and makes it what it wasn't before it makes it like gross and seedy and that actually becomes really interesting. Like dirty movies. Dirty movies is actually, the perfect example. Actually, you feel kind of gross. You feel it. really gross. You feel like you're in a strip club, and he takes you there. Again, he, he's 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 at his cinematic best in Fair Warning. I guess when you hear that, that Van Halen could have been the Led Zeppelin of the 80s, yeah. 
Um, I never hear, hear it that much. Isolated places, but a fair warning, I hear that. Yeah. And I, what I mean is the cinematic uh, feelings and the, the, the wide the wide screen. Yes. You know, I mean, world building almost you get that you don't really get as much with the anthems. I mean, this could be like a Paul Schrader. I mean, Mean Streets. <laughs> mean Streets that, do, and do, do, Dirty do, Movies is like hardcore, that, that um, George C. Scott movie. Um, huh. And uh, what would you play off it? Well, I think we got to play Unchained. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, that's that's the only song that people know from from that album, and it's it's a it's a rocker. Those those backup vocals are incredible, but they come in like a beat earlier than you think they're gonna come in each time. I love it. And you know, if if we want to give Dave credit for for songwriting, misogynist or not, blue eyed murder in a size five dress is a great line. <laughs> blue eyed murder in a size five dress. Uh, it, the whole thing uh, it, it has its um. It's a it's a tight package, and you can feel it is more claustrophobic than the other records. Down, I mean, from the Hieronymus Bosch kind of uh, cover yeah. downward. Yeah. And um, you wonder, like, was this a pre-cocaine album for Eddie? Because it, like, it doesn't seem as well. It's certainly like the 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 armies are, are are forming within Van Halen. You you're getting David Lee Roth and Ted Templeman aligning towards. Um, a certain sound and you're getting Eddie and uh, Don Landy, the engineer aligning towards a certain sound and, and certain agendas. Um, David Lee Roth is of the opinion that Eddie should stick to being a guitar hero and that's it. Like we stick to the formula. We deliver for the audience. We Mike keep it love. upbeat. Yeah, Mike that's love. right. Yeah. That's right. We keep it upbeat. We keep it positive. We keep it for the ladies. Um, and Templeman is, you know, knows what commercial is clearly brothers for crying out loud from his track record um and eddie with don is finding that um they can create soundscapes which happens in sunday afternoon in the park is fucking weird yeah and it's awesome see i can't even recall it off the top here let me just play a little bit of it
that's like the standard uh, instrumental track on every every Van Halen album, except for they ain't been like that before. No, I mean that sounds like a nineteen eight. I mean it's nineteen eighty one. That sounds like Tron. You know, yeah, that, right. that's got a real uh, a dark. When, but if Tron was like X rated, I guess. I mean, yeah. it was a, <laughs> that would be an interesting movie. But it, the um. <laughs> so. If Sunday afternoon in the park is any indication of where Eddie's head is, I think it's round about this time that he discovers cocaine. This is a party band, mm-hmm. and everybody in the uh, in the band is partying except for Eddie. Alex is a beast. Dave is like taking advantage of what lead singers do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Michael Anthony is 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 still single. <laughs> Not yet a committed man. But Eddie is basically, after every show, going to his hotel room and, you know, getting a fifth of vodka and cocaine and discovering that what cocaine does is whatever expansion that he he experiences from alcohol, cocaine enhances it and prolongs it. So he's basically up until the crack of dawn just creating Mm -hmm. by himself. And alcohol lowers his inhibitions. He always talks about it. Right. And so what's happening is that by the time Eddie crashes, he gets a knock on the door, the hotel room door, and it's Dave who's gotten some sleep and is like, get up, man. It's time. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, you need to reevaluate your life because they're basically two different types of human being. And Dave's out. Dave wants him to go roller skating. That's right. big. Dave's on the roller skating kick in like '82. Dave goes up. He gets into when he gets into phases of things. He's again like Mike Love of the Beach Boys. I mean, right. He gets deep, deep. And if he gets into rock climbing, and he's if you're not all in, the way, you're an idiot. Yeah, and uh, and you can get the sense. I mean, the 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 spark of the band is the is the friction between these two. Uh, you know, just absolutely crazy guys i mean they're 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 so different and that's what's exciting about them you have what is it says that what someone said um eddie is obsessed with technique and dave is contemptuous of technique yeah but it makes for a electricity i don't do well with support i do better with abuse you know my family <laughs> when i was eating dinner were the ones who told me kid you should have been a sailor instead of a singer because you're mutiny on the high seas <laughs> So Diver Down, though, they come out with an 82. Yeah, and the reason why that happens, the There's way it happens. they to, aren't they? Um, well, it's going to be an EP. So what happens is I think they're not getting along. They're finding it hard to, to work together. Mm-hmm. And either the label or Dave says, let's just do a quick cover and give the fans something. And they do Pretty Woman. <laughs> um, Which Eddie gets pissed that it does well because it's got no guitar solo on it. <laughs> And it's not he, good. I, I mean, he honestly. He says, like, this is, shows how much people care about guitar solos. Right, right. And uh, it's not good. However, the other covers on the record are fantastic. They're great. So the, uh, a Pretty Woman prompts Warner Brothers to say, get back in the studio and do a mostly cover album, which they do. Uh, Diver Down was never my, my favorite album, but it does have um, one of my favorite covers they've ever done. Um, I hope you say what you're about to say. <laughs> and that's Dancing in the Street. Dancing in the Street. It's... All right, here we go. Play I'm it. Just 
that's another one of the great discoveries for me of this research period was how sublime that cover is and i read that later on templeman it was originally like a moog composition that eddie had worked for ages on Mm -hmm. and templeman uh, convinces him to let dave sing basically dancing on this in the street over it yeah or and it changed some chords and eddie resented him he holds crutches clearly for like 25 years because he it was a precious piece of music to him and yet i listen to it and i think it's it's perfect it's it's so good and it is all eddie i mean i if if that like moog thing and the bounce wasn't there i i wouldn't care as much but man is it hooky and like wonderful to listen to is it i mean diver down though has become a bit of a um shorthand for bands sort of jumping the shark or like it it wasn't as good as the first four it's not records i happen to really like it because it's got that hodgepodge quality i love their cover of where have all the good times gone another another kinks cover Mm -hmm. hang them high to me is is, i i I think it's It's a good rock song it's a great rock song cathedral is just uh as as klosterman says it's not he didn't just read raymond carver it's just like (laughs) trying to get his guitar to sound like a church organ um, and then they close with the happy trails thing. Yeah, and then Big Bad Bill is is you know I, I've I've told you uh, that I, I can't stand Simity Bop Boop Beep. I can't stand that stuff from Dave. <laughs> but of all of those, Big Bad Bill is pretty fun. And Jan Van Halen plays clarinet on it. I forgot about that. Yeah. I, I know that they. They love that, and I. The, they also you would always close all of their concerts with "Happy Trails," which is the, the arranged for four-part harmonies. And again, Klosterman says, "When you realize that the lead singer is the third best singer in a four-man band, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Happy Trails yeah. to you." And Dave is doing the Zumba Dub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, I I find Diver Down kind of playful, and I know it's not the it's not it's not on the same level, but I I'm glad it's in the discography because. Yeah. It it feels like it's the well the work most of a important band. the most important thing to come out of Diver Down is fifty one fifty, which is Eddie and Don Landy create a home studio for Eddie that is custom built for everything. It's the dream come true for Ed. Yeah, um, and it paves the way for the biggest album yet for them, which is nineteen eighty four, an album that is driven by synthesizer yes and ed's desire to transition into this new-ish instrument and kind of experiment and and world build with the synthesizer and and what you see there is like i think what's happening is everything that eddie has ever wanted to do with the guitar he pretty much is done by this point yeah and synthesizer is the new horizon um and Roth is totally opposed. He <laughs> thinks this is a bad idea until, and, and, and Templeman is basically on the same page until they hear jump. Yeah. And that, and Templeman's like guild. I mean that, those, that riff that, that see, that's what I associated Van Halen with was jump. Right. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, that's uh, and it, it pumps you up still. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, it's it's all Dave doing his splits in the air on that video right. that I guess he directed. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. He directed a lot of those videos. And let's face it, 
MTV is starting to explode, and it could not be more perfectly timed. Van Halen is an MTV band have, have, with there was 1984. One. And, uh, you know, I guess the very first MTV Music Video Awards is in 1984, and Van yeah. Halen wins everything. Right. Um but you know we've 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 looked we've o- skipped over we've overlooked something. Of something I that's knew very we were going to get to it. Do it. <laughs> well, um, in 1982, does this involve chimpanzees? Uh, Eddie is called in to do a season. He gets a phone call from a man named Quincy Jones. Yep. Uh, to lend a hand to uh, his Quincy's new production. Quincy is producing, of course, Michael Jackson's "Beat It," and uh, they say that uh, apparently Quincy wanted to have a song on the record that was in the in the same style as "My Sharona" by The Knack. Really. Which, I mean, in my opinion, beat it, blows it out of the water in every conceivable way. So um, he calls, he calls uh, Eddie Van Halen to come and he wants him to do a guitar solo because what Michael Jackson wants, Michael Jackson gets. Right. And uh, Eddie told Quincy he would agree to do the solo on three conditions. Uh, this is for you, Aaron. Uh, that he would never be credited for the work because he didn't want other members of Van Halen to find out about it. The cat's out of the bag, my friend. Uh, number two, he didn't need to be paid because it was just a favor. All he wanted was a case of beer in return. And number three, maybe Michael could teach him how to dance one day. And Eddie does appear with them on the Victory Tour. I think it's the Victory Tour. I forget, um, the Jackson, the Jackson Five do that wow. uh, tour. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Because they they don't allow Michael to tour for Thriller. They they force him to do a, a Jackson's tour. Um, God, I forgot all about that. And Eddie that appears. That was major. On it. That was like. Pick your Jackson. Well, this is, uh, you know, this exposes Eddie Van Halen to, you know, right. people the in, world. in Cambodia. I right. mean, he, everyone in the that, that record was so astronomical, and of course the video is great. And so you have the iconography almost of Jackson's red jacket, and then you have Eddie's, you know, uh, you know, guitar with the with the, the red guitar with the yep. black and white stripes, and it's just kind of. When you think of the 80s, that's one of the things I think about. Sure. great solo and oh and the, what but people don't realize eddie's like is so adamant and that he doesn't like deserve credit for it and he's fine with not getting paid because he could have made so but apparently he had quincy rewrite the chords during the solo so he could solo it in a different key and he could have legitimately asked for songwriting credit yeah because he just said it would sound better if he was able to do it in the key of e or something like that just a reminder we're talking about beat it <laughs> oh, did I not say that? No, you did. I'm just pointing out <laughs> that Eddie Van Halen could have had royalties on Beat It. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Whatever. I don't need it. So that happened. We have a couple of passages underlined, and I just want you to respond to a couple of these. Uh, during the concert, Van Halen roadies scour the audience for the cutest girls they can find. <laughs> According to legend, every roadie gets five backstage passes to hand out. Well, we do that every night here, don't we, Paul? Uh, Many a girl has been known 
going to leave her boyfriend behind for a chance to party with the boys. Oh, my God. Uh, David Lee Roth claims to be actively searching out girls from the stage. That's you. When he spots a girl in the audience he thinks is cute, he dances over to the side of the stage while Eddie takes a guitar solo. Oh, this is pitiful. <laughs> no, I can't. No, wait a minute. Let me just finish can, this one explain. little thing here, and then you can say David, whatever you want to say. Night Court. Let me take it. <laughs> well, let me just finish. There's one little line here, uh, David. Uh, I feel like this is Judge Wapner. <laughs> a guitar solo. There he will shout something to an available roadie like red right, red t-shirt, out of sight, six feet back. While David dances back to the microphone, a roadie in the front row will receive a radio communique from the stage, then he will go to work to find the girl and give her a pass. Now, is, is there a hint of truth anywhere in this? Well, it all started... <laughs> <laughs> it all started when you start building your own stages and you're taking your own production on the road and they said Dave we have to build our own custom barricade out there you know and I said well and this was a few years ago I said well let's then let's customize it so we can so we can uh, do exactly what you just read <laughs> and we painted numbers on the on the inside and, uh, you know, people keep reminding me of this kind of crazy image. People keep invoking this this wild-eyed, slack-jawed image and everything. And I tell you, I've been seeing the same girl now for maybe two, maybe three weeks, man. This is David Lee Roth saying, When you look out of your bedroom door and a midget goes by in a bath towel, you know you're not in life insurance. <laughs> this is during the period where... Um, the lost David weekend. Lee Roth has uh, yes, they give a fan of the the Kurt MTV Jeffries runs runs Pennsylvania a, a contest where you can have a lost weekend with Van Halen, and apparently the guy really did have a, an insane weekend with Van Halen. It's it's on YouTube. And it, watch it. it. It's, it's it's a, a contest treat. that MTV runs. Yep. You can find about all about. It. Apparently, there's a documentary done that yeah. Eddie then blocked. Oh really? It was like a 20 minute. It will come out someday. Yeah. But um. It, it is important to say that Roth was in the practice. He had two bodyguards that were what were known then as midgets, yeah. and they were went everywhere with him. Yeah. And so uh, the, <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. That happened. <laughs> well, <laughs> so much of this could never happen today. But David Lee Roth went nowhere without well, his two bodyguards. Well, here's the beautiful thing: is that. So, again, you can see all this stuff on, on YouTube, um, and it's wonderful, especially because Kurt Jeffries, he's like... He's, he's like just Stanley from Fast Times. Affable dude from Pennsylvania with this great, like, Pennsylvania accent who ends up going on tour for the weekend with Van Halen. Is this 84? Yeah, it's 84. It's at Cobo Hall, once again. Oh, comes into Alive! The <laughs> we talked about Cobo Hall with the Kiss Seeger. and Seeger and so many others. Live bullet. I said hello and she said, hi, this is Barb Fleeman from MTV. She said that. My heart dropped out to my kneecap. She said, okay, good. I just wanted to inform you that you're a grand prize winner. I said, I don't know. I said, oh my God. My palms, my hands were sweating. My sister said, you better sit down before you fall down. Ladies and gentlemen, we have... 
Um, they bring uh, Kurt out and they say, this is the winner of the last weekend. Everybody goes nuts. And then they just take a giant cake and shove it into his face. And then they pop champagne bottles and they just douse this dude. I mean, it is the ultimate hard rock fantasy. And then here's a little tidbit of, of what Kurt said was happening backstage. Alex was real insistent that I start slamming beers. I told him that I wanted to take it easy, but he wasn't buying. He gave me a can of Heineken and said, I'm going away now, and when I get back in about one minute, this beer better be gone. He got his creepy roadie to guard me to make sure I drank it. I think I poured it in the trash can. One of the band's... (laughs) (laughs) What? 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 (laughs) One of the band's midgets actually (laughs) saw me do it. I think he took pity on me. Because he didn't tell anyone. When Alex got back, he saw the empty can and said, good job. Then he smashed it on his forehead and disappeared. (laughs) He was really cool, though. Uh, I remember hearing, didn't Dave says, I think we need Tammy right now. And so this groupie shows up, takes off her clothes, and they take a shower. They get in the shower. Oh, my God. And then after all that, like... Not only are basically there, Kurt is hazed by Van Halen for two days, <laughs> which just makes me laugh so hard. But then at the end, Lex they got is literally a- crying right now. He's <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about it. <laughs> Martha Quinn is like reporting this from the sidelines. At the end, they got a TV. Sorry. At the end, they got a TV, a VCR, a motorcycle, an Atari, and a thousand bucks. <laughs> I mean, if that's not heaven, I don't know what it is. And I understand that Kurt and his new wife, Bambi, are living in Detroit. <laughs> joke, that's a joke. That, that movie Airheads, remember oh that movie God. Airheads with Brendan yeah, Fraser? It, it Doesn't he, like, make them... I think Van Halen is just, you know, becomes the absolute litmus for a certain kind of Wayne's World type of guy well, who existed forget, in the 80s and 90s. Let's not forget Wild Stallions. Oh that my gosh. Wild Stallions felt Bill and that. Ted. The truth is, Wild Stallions will never be a super band until we have Eddie Van Halen on guitar. Yes, Bill, but I do not believe we will get Eddie Van Halen until we have a triumphant video. Ted, it's pointless to have a triumphant video before we even have decent instruments. Well, how can we have decent instruments when we don't really even know how to play? That is why we need Eddie Van Halen. But this is how central these guys were in the culture, and then it all implodes. Yeah, basically, they're falling apart. Um, Eddie scores a Cameron Crowe movie, The Wildlife. I know that was Cameron Crowe. Yep. Eric Stoltz. Um, he has a it? song called Donut City. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that. <laughs> I missed that one, yeah. Um, but basically, yeah. Um, what's happening is Dave is realizing that he's awesome in his own mind. Um, he makes a deal uh, with CBS to make his own movie. Yes. Um, <laughs> and he's also working on an EP called Crazy from the Heat. Which ends up being just as big as, it, as he thought it's it was going to be. Yeah. It's I mean, the one it's that's horrible. got California Girls, <laughs> the video of which I still can recall very vividly from my childhood because of the various bikinis right. and lack thereof. And then, then uh, uh, it's but got... But it's basically like old 
Just a gigolo is on there. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's nothing metal or I hard rock about nobody. it. Yeah. But I don't want to make a record because a record's too big of a statement for me. You know, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going solo. I got my tribal instincts fully intact. I'm all ready to go back in the studio with these guys and argue my way into the top ten again. And hey, and they're looking forward to it too. And, and so we go. So according to Eddie and Alex, he strings them along for a long time, for about five months, where... The Van Halens basically don't know if the band's getting back together to record another song or another album or if they're done. And Dave is basically saying, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still in. I'm still in. Um, but it turns out... He's not still in. He's not. But we've also talked about 1984 without even playing one song oh from my gosh <laughs> what do you want to 1984 to me is is it kind of an outlier all because you. it's so much more um keyboard driven i think um you know jump is the song that everyone can recall from memory that's their only number one hit mm-hmm. i think um is their first to that point. hit yeah yeah Panama is an incredible tune, rock song. And a memorable video. <laughs> it's the first time you see the Jack Daniels bass with Mike, Mike Anthony. I think I'll play what, is, what, what, what passes for a ballad, which is I'll wait. expect Sammy Hagar to start singing on that song. It's a, it's a it's a great tune. I think like a far as rock and roll songs go, Panama sort of has it all beat. Yeah, I mean Panama like has the video to end all videos as far as 80s. I mean, you got Dave on the on the high wire and then you got Michael Anthony on the high wire. I mean, it's it's what everybody I think remembers. I think the cover, the album cover art of the the little Cupid smoking yeah. is one of my favorite things about the record. I'm not that into it. I'm not either. Honestly. Like I think uh, you know, it's Templeman's still there. I think Andy Johns helps with it. Yeah. It's uh it's a different it's a different beast and you can understand why people felt a little betrayed, but again, they printed money off that thing. They sure did. And so so all of a sudden by the time it's really cresting Dave is out of the band, and, and, and they bring it all public. Just like any band, any band, we're having a career difference here. We're having a musical difference, and we're going to go our own ways. And we cried, and we hugged, and he split, and two weeks later, I'm reading in Rolling Stone what an asshole I am, and how poor little Eddie was forced to spend the last 12 years of his life living a lie, like a National Enquirer or something. And here comes his wife, you know, to back it up, you know, and on and on and on. So I stayed quiet for six months, seven months. And I'm just reading diatribe after harangue, after this, after that, you know, again and again and again. And I still believe there's no, it's not necessary to make a comparison. I don't think you have to make a choice, but Van Halen demands it. Van Halen is demanding for some bizarre, retarded reason for the audience to make a choice. You have to either love us and hate him or vice versa. They demand it, they demand it. Well, I'll rise to the challenge. 
If we have to have a comparison, then fine. I eat you for breakfast, pal. <laughs> I eat you and smile. So they end up going, though, with... The lead singer of Montrose. Or he was only in that for two, two albums, and then he starts a, a solo career, which is... You know, he sells <laughs> millions of records. You forget this yeah, about Sammy Hagar. Yeah, but not until the 80s. What I... Here's the thing about Sammy Hagar. Yes. The unkillable Sammy Hagar. Even when you like think that honestly he he's not really worthy. He's still there. And the reason why is the guy is savvy as a, as a businessman. He has a fantastic voice. He has the perfect voice in the 70s and early 80s for record executives to want to find a place for his voice. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's incredible at branding. Yeah. Red, the song from from that Sammy Hagar album from the late 70s, is not a great song. But he just, and yet he brands his whole identity on it. On and a makes, color. On a, on let's a just color. It, and he doesn't really have red hair. I mean, he's got sort of orangey blonde hair. The song is not good. I'm haunted by the mystery The mystery of red You know what my, my favorite early Sammy Hagar song is? What? And, uh, you know, I know that, you know, There's Only One Way to Rock is, is a very important milestone, or I can't drive, sure. I can't drive uh, 55 is, is also an important one. But um, on his very first solo record, which yeah. is nine, nine on, on a, a ten, 10 scale, scale. Yeah. which um, there's a song in there called Silver Lights, which is about... It's a great song. Well, it's about this second coming of Christ as an alien. Uh, He's big into aliens. And I didn't realize this, because you associate Sammy Hagar as kind of like a even... Frankly, the way a lot of people think about Bob Seger, and I know that we've deconstructed all that in our wonderful episode, yeah. is a way that people think about Sammy Hagar as this sort of almost aggressively regular per dude. Yeah. And uh, and yet he is absolutely... Uh, he sings about being abducted by aliens, and he's... I've got a quote from him from his book called Red, My Uncensored Life in Rock. Yeah. I was lying in bed one night dreaming, he recalls in the book. I saw a ship and two creatures inside of this ship. I couldn't see their faces. I just knew that they were two intelligent creatures sitting up in a craft in the Little Creek Forest area about 12 miles in the foothills above Fontana. And they were connected to me, tapped into my mind through some kind of mysterious wireless connection. He insists he was seeing something real. It friggin... It's an exact quote. It friggin' happened, the 63-year-old singer explained. Aliens were plugged into me, either a download or an upload. They were tapped into my brain, and the knowledge was transferred back and forth. I could see them in everything while it was happening, like an experiment. Let's see what this guy <laughs> knows. <laughs> so Silver Lights is about uh, aliens, and Love Walks In, which has becomes a huge hit for Van Halen. That's my favorite intro to a, to a song ever. <laughs> Have you seen the live version where he's like, he plays here's guitar, he plays lead guitar, and Eddie, which is, he's like, here's here's a song, the first song we all wrote together. It's a great song. And uh, it's a song that is about aliens, and it's called Love Comes Walking In. <laughs>
<laughs> it's got Love Walks in. So he becomes the lead singer and people lose their, just lose their marbles. They're the biggest heavy metal band in the world without a doubt. No one can top them. The new Van Halen is totally awesome. We're band new. Yeah, we're a new band that took an old name and just used New Van Halen's great compared to the old Van Halen. Who needs Simon Dave? I think they're trying to prove that now that Dave's gone that they can do it. They can do just as good or better. We're not out to really prove anything. It's like we're we're all musicians. There's no there's no Vegas trip to it anymore. The combo of Sammy and Van Halen is a pretty damn good one. I mean, Sammy is coming off of VOA, which is also produced by Ted Templeman. <laughs> Ted Templeman, everywhere. Um, which has a song in it called Dick and the Dirt, <laughs> which is a testament to Sammy's horn dog lyrics, which just po- <laughs> do not stop. He's a poet laureate, this guy. <laughs> um, the, the sound of 5150 is it's like Reagan 80s to the max. Mm. Um, but it, it honestly is, it's unlike anything else that's, that's happening. And I, I think that that album is, is pretty fantastic. I mean, it, it, again, it doesn't sound that to me that different from 1984. And I mean, the guy, you, the people feel so strongly about this that I'm almost scared to say these things out loud. Right. The, the Klosterman, for example, links ranks as the very worst Van Halen song, the song, why can't this be love? Because it's the worst decision they ever made. Uh, this, you know, the, the which why can't this be love to me is it has this keyboard riff that is to kill for. It is such a good keyboard riff. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. I always thought that was sort of like a um, more of a um, Peter Frampton guitar line, but it's just, right. it's it's a keyboard thing, and um, that record fifty one fifty people really stand by. Now, I'm of the opinion like I I definitely my predilection after listening to all this stuff is very much in the Roth direction. Sure, but I find it, it like Kiss Van, Sammy Hagar is extraordinarily fun to think about. Uh, absolutely, I mean look. <laughs> Honestly, like he is a David Lee Roth match. I know that fan-wise it's it's not an easy switch, but I think actually personality-wise they are comparable. Well, except for he writes these horn dog lyrics, but he's 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 dug, um Roth actually sort of he, he never got married, you know. He, he moves to Japan and just sort right. of hangs out there for a while and becomes a paramedic later just because for the hell of it. Sammy is uh, married the entire time, and right. although he gets divorced later, he seems to be like – he's presenting himself as both this Lothario and this family man and this right. kind of like – what do they call it? Like wheats in the field country. He, today, he would be he would kind of be a part of the Nashville scene, I think. It's new country to the max. I mean, look, Sammy Hagar takes a page like long ago, I think. Think actually takes a page from Jimmy Buffett as far as branding goes. Hey, 
Well, I got two things, two, two things to read from Klosterman about Hagar, and I think he's the, at his funniest and wittiest here. He says, first of all, he says, songs from the Roth era are marginalized as party anthems designed for strippers, subscribers to Guitar World magazine, and guys with unusually strong opinions about how many cylinders a car engine should have. Songs from the Ham- Sammy Hagar era are marginalized as well-crafted, non-bombastic radio hits that you can like but never love, unless you're Sammy or whoever concocted the marketing strategy for Crystal Pepsi. They famously uh, endorsed Crystal Pepsi, which led Saturday Night Live to do the skit about Crystal Gravy. <laughs> then here's another thing. Among Van Halen fans, there tend to be three distinct perceptions of who Sammy Hagar is. The first comes from people who worship Dave and can only see Sam as the guy who wrecked their favorite band. The second comes from snooty double nickels on the dime fanatics. Those are Minutemen fans who sort of have a little bit more, I guess, music snob cred, who always viewed Hagar as the bozo to end all bozos and generally see his enlistment in Van Halen as an indictment of Eddie's taste and judgment. But the third perception is the casual perception, which is that Hagar is just a good dude, a rock star who doesn't act like a rock star, a self-aware interview subject, a laid-back workaholic, and the pop metal version of Jimmy Buffett. I think that's so right. <laughs> and honestly, on Hagar's part, yes. so wise. He's always been good with money. They talk about him investing in sprinkler systems. <laughs> sprinkler systems. <laughs> he, he like boasts about it in his book, apparently. But he, he was like, this is a guy whose surprisingly excellent autobiography includes a couple of pages about how he got rich investing in sprinkler systems. <laughs> but you can't knock the guy. Like, he has managed. Everyone needs a sprinkler system if you're in California. <laughs> he has managed to sustain himself since... When was that Montrose album? Like 1972. 73. And he is still on tour to this day. For somebody who is... Chicken foot. Non-phenomenal. He owns a tequila. He still does what he loves. Like, you can't knock the guy. He's the red rocker. He's the red rocker, man. So we should go through some of these albums, because 5150 is a monster hit. Yeah. And, of course, very divisive, but sort of it breaks Van Halen with a whole new group of fans. The propaganda goes so far as to put all of new Van Halen in a Hank Williams Jr. video called My Name is Bocephus. I didn't know that. (laughs) Really? Yep. How are you going to beat Fast Eddie, Dave? I figured it might take me a year, you know. What am I going to do in the interim? Can't sit by the telephone and wait for a lead guitar player in Tuna Fish, Wyoming. He's on tour with Roddy and the Red Cats. He's never going to call you. So I figured I'd get into the movie biz. Got into the movie biz. Now I'm learning about lawsuits. So this is happening while Roth is still very much got all the cultural capital in the world. He's, the Crazy from the Heat, the four-song EP, uh, has done ex- way too too good, uh, that much better than it deserves. But then he, he Templeman has defected with him, yep. and they put together Eat Him and Smile, which today is what would be called a problematic 
cover, and I think it's even taken from a sort of a, a blackface commercial from the twenties. It's all wrong. It's um, but he finds Steve Vai. Yep. The great Steve Vai, who has been playing with uh, Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. and he gets him to join his band with Billy Sheehan, yep. um, and they put together the David Lee Roth band, and they put they put out a song called Yankee Rose, which is uh, about Dave lusting for the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yes, that's exactly, and it's a, it's it is an awesome. It's probably his best single. Should I play it? Yeah. Subir a la cera para echarle un ojo. Uy, qué bella. Me refiero a la Yankee Rose. <laughs> Una rosa silvestre. That entire record in Spanish as well as, as English for some some reason. I think like Billy Sheehan, the bassist, had read that like there's a lot more people in California. The age bracket <laughs> of Spanish speakers fits the market for the uh, album, and so they decide to record the whole thing in Spanish as well. And he like changes a few of the lyrics. It it, <laughs> it does not go over well. It does. As, as you just heard. <laughs> But there's a song called Going Crazy from the Heat, which is a great song. Um, uh, I'll play the real version of that. I just surprised Dave with uh, the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fun but forgettable, and the the fact is that if Van Halen and David Lee Roth solo are running in parallel, fifty one fifty wins the race, mm-hmm. um, and is. But there's still a race there. Yeah, it it soon ceases to be a race at all. Although one of the great discoveries of mine of this time, yeah, was it was his second solo record, Skyscraper which he produced with Steve Vai. They, of course, had a falling out in the middle of it. But um, it's got the song, uh, like, Living in Paradise, just like Living in Paradise, Mm -hmm. which uh, I guess they wanted for the Melrose Place, uh, you know, um, theme song, and Dave's managers didn't think he'd be interested, and, of course, that would have been millions and millions of dollars. But the rest of the record is arty and strange, and there's a song, I think the opening song is called Knuckle Bones. I think it's it's fantastic. You like that one? There's also a song on the the song Skyscraper itself has these weird panning vocals. It doesn't it doesn't quite work. Dave's on the cover like mountain climbing. It's yeah. 
The meanwhile, he looks like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. <laughs> they come, e- eat him and smile is the name of his record. Van Halen's working on the next one, and so they decide to name it OU812, but just those, just the digits. Yeah. And um, I've always, I can never, I always f- have a smile whenever I see that uh, title, and I, I think it's a major step down in quality, although. Um, one of my spoiler alert, one of my top five Van Halen songs is on there. Is on OU812. Yeah. Um, well, you know what comes right before OU812 is so to get Sammy Hagar, they had to pull him away from Geffen Records to Warner Brothers, but Sammy still had an obligation to get to Geffen Records, and he recorded a solo album while in Van Halen called. I never said goodbye. And I actually, for the first time, you know, I've worked my way through all this Sammy solo catalog. And I, I, I've put together a playlist from the 70s and early 80s. God bless you. I know. It's, it's not been easy. But I found some interesting stuff. But I have to say that his best work actually is on this really? 1987 album. Is that the one that uh, Eddie plays bass on? Yeah, Eagles Dare or Eagles Fly. Um, it's it's pretty good, you know. Yeah. Um, so that happens after yeah. fifty one fifty exactly, and but before oh you wait one ruling two. the world basically. Yeah, the combination of dreams, um, you know the uh, and uh, why can't this be love and best of both worlds? These are monster hits. Um, but I will play from oh you wait one two. I will play. By the way, the first tape I ever bought. Um. Cabo Wabo. I love that song. I think it's great. Lots of Sammy sexual innuendo, of course. I mean, it sets the tone for, without Van Halen, his trajectory into tequila shilling. And, <laughs> Tequilaville. And Margaritaville. He the got the whole deal. He figures it out there, which I, I think is, is kind of fun. Um, they produce that album, and Don Landy engineers, they've fully parted ways with Ted Templeman at, at this point. The album cover, I think, is notable in that it's it's like mature Van Halen, you know? <laughs> the guy's like white on black, you give, know? Give me a break a little bit. But I will say that they also cover on OU812, they cover AA Political Blues, they do. which is a Little Feet song. Yep. On the album Ted that Templeman. Ted Templeman did. So you wonder if it's... Uh... There's got to be some cross-pollination there. Speaking of cross-pollination, Sammy for Cabo Wabo steals from... And go back and listen to it. Make it last. That that Van Halen used to cover in their club days. Is that right? That's right. Uh, That's right. We've read the same things. Uh, <laughs> well, I remember when I was seven 
this is an interesting uh, quote that I thought from Stephen Thomas Erlewine from the All Music Guide. He said, when David Lee Roth fronted the band, almost everything that Van Halen did seemed easy, as big, boisterous, and raucous as an actual party. But Van Hagar makes good times seem like tough work. <laughs> I can kind of feel that way. They, they're given to a little bit more seriousness, and yet they're huge. Though, Finish What You Started, I don't think is a very good song. And um, I think OU812, again, is a step down, but it's only a prelude to they spend forever working on the next record. I, I, I mean, look. For, here's, un, here's for unlawful I, carnal knowledge, you could, you could put to the, 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 a very clever acronym, just in case you thought they'd gotten too mature. <laughs> here's what I'll say about... F-U-C-K. Yes. Um, because of 5150 and OUA812 and what I said at the beginning, Van Halen was my band. And so as a high school student, when For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge came out, I felt like this was my album. Mm. And so I clung to it. There couldn't be a worse album. <laughs> Pam Kick I find, is great. I find nothing good about it. <laughs> This is full rejection of, of high school Lex. Right oh here. my goodness. Pleasure no, no. Dome? You don't like Pleasure Nothing. Dome? Nothing. Spanked? I feel <laughs> full about, betrayal. Like phone sex. Yeah. Full betrayal. Wow. But right right now becomes this sort of self this wonder this anthem that ends up raising a ton of money for hunger. Yeah. Uh, though if you <laughs> it's also on the same album that has spanked. And uh, so and In and Out, which is not about the burgers. Okay, In and Out is like the one song that I, I kind of am okay with. The writing's on the wall here, but it spawns a massive world tour. Yeah. It's covered in Van Halen Live. I mean, um, and, uh, you know, they've been fully vindicated at this point. Uh, but they go quiet for a while. Eddie's drinking has really kind of taken over the band from what I hear. Yeah. And uh, he finally gets sober in time for them to make Balance, which uh, is their first record with an outside producer. Balance has Bruce Fairbairn. Fair- Fairbine or Fairburn, Fairburn. Yeah. who is, um, you know, he's, did he produce Pump? Or? I I believe so. Okay, he's uh he's another one of these guys that was good at sort of adding some sheen and radio friendly. Yeah, but as Klosterman says, you know, Van Halen was already making bright radio friendly hard rock. Why did they need someone need to need this guy help him? But they make Balance, which again people don't like. Uh, I saw the tour. You saw that tour? Yeah. I happen to really like the song "Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do."
Sammy's finally been divorced at this point. It opens oh, up with right? a song called The Seventh Seal, which is, you know, the Bergman film. And I don't, I, that's a little out of the Van Halen wheelhouse. Um, there's a song on there called Amsterdam, which is, you know, of course, they're from Holland, the, uh, Alex and Eddie. And it's Sammy's Ode to Amsterdam, which is the only reason people go there is to get stoned and to, you know, the screw, Van Halen brothers screw or do red not th- like it. I don't know why they let it on there. Evidently, don't tell me what love can do was Sammy trying to make a statement about Kurt Cobain's death oh. after the fact. Big fat money kind of makes it very clear about <laughs> Sammy. But there's there's an instrumental there called Baluchtherium, Baluch- which is the name of the largest mammal that lives or something like that. I mean, they're up their own ass at this point. And the way things work in this band is like the brothers will always agree. So it's I always true. No, no, no. He's That's setting that up. Let's put it this way. Three out of four think a certain way than odd man out the well, best I can do is go to Mike and, and pay him off or like really you know, try to get Mike and <laughs> then you got a battle and then the second I leave the room the brothers get Mike and convince well, him we the other way had, and then I come no, back in the room me more. and it's three against they one and I never get my way in this band and I'm well, sick of it there is Mach 3 there is <laughs> literally Van Halen 3 comes out in 1998 with a new lead singer because at that point they fired slash Sammy quit slash whatever they've had a a, a couple tracks on um the uh, greatest hits record greatest hits record and then the twister soundtrack <laughs> Which is a good song, Humans Being. Humans Being. It's not amazing, but it's pretty good. Um, but Van Halen 3 is is awful. I don't know. Do you have anything positive to say about it? Uh, I don't have much. I've only really listened to a couple songs. And Gary Sharon, you know, is the guy they get to sing who has been an extreme. Right. Uh, and... and <laughs> People hate. They, they say people hate him personally even more than they hate the music he made with Van Halen. And Klosterman has to say it's not like Gary Sharon was Pol Pot. He didn't lobby for apartheid or weaponize humidity. Still, it must be noted that Soundgarden went on hiatus in 1997, and Audio Slave didn't come together until 2001, and Van Halen 3 was released in 1998. So there were other options. Hold me close, don't. Halen 3 is up there as one of the commonly thought of as one of the worst albums ever made by a band of this stature and I listened to the song uh, Bullet or, Ballad or the Bullet which is a very ham-fisted attempt at sort of political lyrics but uh, the riff is great um, there's a bunch of, a couple of instrumentals that are okay but yes I, by and large it, 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 it fails, and it's not... Yeah. I wish it was an interesting failure. I love interesting failures. Yeah, I, I don't think it is. The next gasp we hear from Eddie Van Halen, which is really it's kind of sad, because I think he descends into... A, he gets throat cancer. He, he um, you know, is, his, his alcoholism comes right back, and he fi- they finally reunite with Roth, 
in uh, the, 2012. Well, the, well, there's a there's a there's a very very short lived reunion. In is it 1997? Well, yeah, before before Sharon, oh, right. they show up on the MTV Video Music Awards, and I it's remember ex- this. very awkward. And yep. Roth is really thinking he's back in the band, and he acts like an ass. And Eddie fires him basically in. You can almost see it on, on stage. The spot. Yeah, I remember that. Like right now, David wishes he had his old job back. But they produce a couple of songs for um, a greatest hits record. I like the song Me Wise Magic. People don't like it. I think it's great. Um, maybe great's too strong a word. I enjoy it. But then 2012, they get back together finally and do uh, a reunion record called A Different Kind of Truth, which um, is a lot of basically their old demos redone. And, yeah, and I happen to find do find some good things on on this, but uh, I don't think you do. I don't, and here's why. And it actually is vocalized pretty well by Michael Anthony, who at that point had been kicked out of the band. And Poor, replaced, we haven't mentioned him nearly enough. Yes, no, had had been replaced by Wolfgang uh, Van Halen, uh, Eddie's son. Uh, he takes the high road and says, I appreciated my time with Van Halen. And in the end, all this back and forth ruins it for the fans. And I think that that's fair. I feel like by the time that A Different Kind of Truth came out, I was just kind of done with Van Halen, basically because of, you know, there was all these stunts. Sammy and Dave went on tour together. Uh, Sammy toured with uh, Van Halen. And then 2012 rolls around and and, um, Dave is the lead singer. And by that point, I just had felt like I'd been pushed and pulled so much that I just didn't care anymore. I stopped yeah. caring. Wow, so you were one of the fans that got tired of it. Yeah, I just got fed up. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that they're, they're guys who've been famous for a very long time and live in their own universe, and it sounds to me that there is a real uh, addiction issue. Yeah, yeah. And I know that Eddie's very sick right now. Um, you and I got had the pleasure of seeing David Lee Roth in concert recently, and uh, I thought his, his pipes sounded better than I was I expecting. I really enjoyed that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I I like the song You and Your Blues off of Different Kind you of do. Truth. I think it's a good song, and I, I, I like, hadn't. I, I like wasn't the familiar with, with the demo stuff, so that... That's a new song. That's one of the only new songs. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a good song. Um, yeah, so I don't feel one way or the other about the stuff that's on uh, A Different Kind of Truth. Oh, we forgot to say that Ted Templeman goes on to produce Cheap Trick. Is that right? Waking Up with the Monster. Get out of here! that incredible cover. A Warner um, Brothers record. Um... Top fives. What top fives. I have. I'm. I did two top fives. Okay. I did a top five of my favorite Van Halen songs, and then a top five of my favorite Van Halen adjacent slash cover songs. Ooh. Okay. These are not in the same. It's not in order. But um, as much as I love the first record, I sort of consider that to be one long song almost. Yeah. Um, I somebody get me a doctor. I just love. I love the backup vocals. I love the riff. I love the energy. I love the simplicity. I think it's great. Uh, secondly, would be um, and the cradle will rock. Yeah. Or I, I almost put in a simple rhyme. Yeah. But it's just not that indicative. But it's still I like the fact that it's on there. I yeah. love both of those songs off of Women and Children First. Three and this is very uh, typical. I think Unchained is uh, brilliant. For Hang 'em High, 
I listen to Hang 'Em High all the time. It's got those funny cowboy lyrics. I I dig it. Um, and five is uh, Cabo Wabo. It's that. Yes! It's their lead. It's their Zeppelin, you know, tribute or whatever. But and it's making love on the sand and Cabo Wabo. I've been all around the world to Dallas, Texas, and Rome. <laughs> Face down in Cabo. <laughs> but it keeps going, and it keeps getting better, and the solo is incredible. So It really does. I have another top five, but what's yours? Um, well, so I split it up in a different way. Um, I did Dave and Sammy. Okay, perfect, yeah. Um, and we've got some crossover. So uh, I did On Fire, because that was sort of a new discovery for me. My experience of Van Halen 1 was the early versions of that album didn't, I don't think they had on fire. At least the cassette didn't have on fire. Right. Um, and it's the first track on the, the Van Halen zero demo, which was recorded by, um, Gene Simmons or funded by Gene Simmons. You know, he's got that cash. (laughs) Um, uh, women in love on Van Halen two. I I just went through the albums. Um, I just love the, the harmonies when they, they kick in. That's, that's pretty great. Mm. I chose in a simple rhyme because that was a little bit of a discovery for me for women and children first, because it is such an outlier, dirty movies on fair warning, dancing in the streets from, uh, diver down Mm -hmm. and then Sammy from 5150 best of both worlds. I really like that crept up on me. Cabo Wabo off of OU812. I chose Give to Live off of Sammy's solo album from 87, which Ooh. at least was from the Van Halen era. Um, and then Feelin' from Balance, that the final last song. Tra- the last song. Ah, it kind of wallops me. I don't, I don't like anything else on that album, but that last track when Sammy does his full vocal blast of Feelin'. Well, just my kind of it, it. I had that play in the kitchen yesterday, and my wife's quote was, "I think after a long, stressful day, this is the exact opposite of something I want to listen to." I was like, "Oh shit!" And like you hear him just going, Feel it! and you kind of you kind of see where she's coming from. Oh man! My top five uh, adjacent slash cover songs is "Dancing in the Streets" is is is, is number one on that. Um, a bad motor scooter. Oh, good one. Off of Montrose, which uh, Sammy wrote and sang, which has just this great humble pie faces kind of vibe to it. Um, yeah. I love the song Knuckle Bones off of Skyscraper of David Lee Roth. I have to give a closer listen to that. I will say, of all the David Lee Roth stuff, like I pretty much dismiss all that stuff. I, I, I find Eat em and Smile and Skyscraper unlistenable. But because of this, thankfully, I listened to uh, A Little Ain't Enough, that album. Yeah. Niall, wait, Niall Rogers didn't do that one. He did the one after that. Oh, is that right? Niall Rogers produced David, uh, David Lee Roth. I think you and your big fat mouth or something. Or wipe that mouth off your face or your something. Your filthy little mouth. Your filthy little mouth. Something about a mouth, yeah. <laughs> um, I really like that album. Uh-huh. I like suddenly it felt mature. It's from '91. I remember seeing. I think it, it. went platinum. Did it? It's, I remember it's, it's seeing. It's sort of it record a, that's in every single when there used to be used CD stores. Yeah, it was ever. It was. There. It was always in there. Yeah, but um, I will say I thought I like the live version of Dreams. That's a. I don't again. It's off a, that live the, album. Yeah, right here, right now. Yeah, that, yeah. That, um, I did. I, I. I think it. I don't. For some reason, I don't consider it quite a Van Halen song, even though it's the ultimate Van Halen song. Yeah. And then finally, 
you and your blues off of uh, different kind of truth. Just a, nice. sort of a reminder that they they're still alive. I'm gonna do exactly as I please, exactly as I want, and the same thing for the rest of the band. So it's been a steady continuum. It builds and it builds, and we never. It's not a goal-oriented kind of thing. Van Halen has no goals. There's no pot of gold for us at the end of the rainbow. We're just here to ride the rainbow, and you're invited. But it's like you know, it's my rainbow baby and we're just gonna ride it and ride it till we're out of gas and then we'll leave it we'll come back a week later maybe somebody's living in the car anyway what do we send it out on gosh i don't know can you pick something one two Which planet, but 